0: Good morning everyone, this morning I'm I'm taking a one week break from the Genesis series in order to address a timely matter, although there is one primary reason for uh, preaching this particular message, uh, this is the sort of message that can and should be profitably applied in a number of of different directions, so I'm going to go ahead and pray. As for the Lord's blessing upon our time together in Scripture, and then we'll get into it. Father, uh, we we thank you for revealing to us your glory, your majesty, your mercy, and grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, our prayer is that your words would dwell richly in our hearts and transform our lives. We pray that we would indeed be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, declaring to this world the glory of our God and the living hope that comes to all who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, Amen. Let me, let me begin by sharing briefly about the background of this message. Uh, might require a little bit of forbearance on your part to hang with me for five or six minutes, but then things will, uh, will pick up a little bit here. But it, it's, it's been known for several weeks uh, that, the, that the elders are recommending some changes to the South Paris Baptist Church Constitution. Now, constitutional changes to official church documents are typically not things that people get uber-energized about and yet they are important. The example I like to use is that just as a healthy musculoskeletal system supports the movement and productivity of the body, so a healthy organizational structure supports the movement and productivity of the church body. The church is its people, not a building, not an organization, the church is its people, but in as much as it is necessary for our common life to be undergirded by some measure of organization, we want that organization to be clear, efficient, and strong. One proposed constitutional change is to make provision in the Constitution for the ministry of deacons who will assist the elders in various ways. A second proposed constitutional change is to make provision in the Constitution for an associate pastor who would work alongside the elders and provide important leadership in certain aspects of our shepherding ministry. And then a third proposed change, which is the one directly related to this morning's message, is that the elders are proposing that the church's doctrinal statement be adjusted by removing the word premillennial from the section that describes the return of our Lord. Uh, The part of our doctrinal statement that articulates our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ concludes with the affirmation that we believe in our Lord's personal, visible, and premillennial return from heaven. The elders' recommendation is to delete premillennial and replace it with glorious and triumphant so that the new statement would affirm that we believe in our Lord's personal, visible, glorious, and triumphant return from heaven. Now, I place a premium on church unity. My desire is that the congregation freely approve these three recommendations with unanimous or near-unanimous support. Uh, Technically, we we need two-thirds support, but I would like to see Nine tenths or higher support on on every recommended item. The transparent purpose of this sermon is to persuade you of the rightness of walking in joyful unity with other Christians, regardless of their belief about the nature and timing of the millennium. As I have navigated the riches of the Christian church for the last 25 years, it has become evident to me that there are faithful Christians who land in different places on their millennial views. Now, it's not my purpose in this message to unpack the ins and outs of the various millennial views, aside from the fact that there is no way that these issues could be adequately unpacked in one sermon. To unpack the ins and outs of the various views would be very tedious, and it would also involve us in a combination of minutia and conjecture. Further, one's millennial views are often interconnected with a number of other doctrinal beliefs, so a deep dive would involve some, some complexity. So for the sake of general understanding, let me simply say that premillennialists, and there, there are different stripes of premillennialism, but premillennialists believe That after Jesus returns, he will establish his millennial reign, thousand-year millennial reign on the earth, and only after that thousand-year millennial kingdom will the final judgment take place and then the new heaven and the new earth be ushered in. One of the greatest strengths of the premillennial view is that it seems to be the most straightforward reading of Revelation chapters 19 to 22. On the other hand, there are, there's the non-premillennial view. Uh, non-premillennialists, are, are, some of them are, are called amillennialists, and some are called postmillennialists. It's not that they don't believe that there is such a thing as a millennium, but their understanding of the nature of it and the timing of it is different. They, non-premillennialists believe that when the Lord returns, they'll immediately go into the final judgment followed by the new heaven and the new earth. In other words, there won't be any interim kingdom between the Lord's return and the final eternal state. One of the greatest strengths of non-premillennial views is that it makes good sense of numerous other New Testament passages that suggest that the Lord's return will bring a finality to this present evil world. And it's difficult to imagine human sinfulness and rebellion continuing on earth after the Lord's return, which is exactly what premillennialists believe will happen. Of course, I would be remiss, and Charlotta might even mention this to me, I would be be remiss not to mention our panmillennialist friends who don't stake out any position on the millennium, but remain steadfast in the belief that the Lord will see to it that everything will pan out in the end. <laughs> and that, that is undoubtedly true. Premillennialists, amillennialists, and postmillennialists are well-represented throughout church history and are well-represented throughout the church today. I have been significantly influenced, helped, and strengthened by faithful men from all three millennial camps. And my conviction is that we can have a congregation of faithful, Bible-saturated, gospel-captivated, church-loving Christians who may nevertheless differ from one another on their millennial view. Now, in light of the background to this sermon, I've titled the sermon, One Hope. In fact, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to be all over the Bible this morning and you're not going to want to try to follow along, but I will be spending a few minutes in Ephesians 4, and so I invite you to turn there. I'll get to there momentarily. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is united in one hope, and being united together in this one hope is not dependent on comprehensive agreement on all the details of end-time questions. The New Testament word hope It's not like, it's much richer than uh, the modern uses of the word hope that we throw around. Uh, The word hope directs our attention to the future. Hope is future-oriented. This very basic idea that hope is future-oriented is made clear, for example, by Paul's statement in Romans 8 when he said, Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Romans 8, 24 and 25. The content of biblical hope is the unseen future that God has promised. And so we wait for it with patience. We need to be continually reminded of the hope that the the Lord has set before us. Because in this present life, We face many troubles, and we face many trials. If our hope is gutted of the promise of future glory and gets reduced down to the expectation that this present life is going to work out well for us, that we're going to enjoy material wealth and physical health and earthly comfort and earthly respectability and political success, then we're going to get into a heap of trouble, and we're not going to remain faithful to Jesus. Jesus did not tell us to live in order to maximize our comfort, wealth, and likability in this present life. He said in Luke 6, 24 to 26, But woe to you who are rich! for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So if you live in such a way that, that you're trying to maximize earthly riches now, earthly abundance now, earthly happiness now, earthly respectability now, then one day it's all going to come crashing down. But on the other hand, Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for be, for." Behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Matthew, Matthew 6:20 20 to 23. That's Luke, Luke 6:20 Luke 20 to 23. Jesus calls us to lay down our lives and resources for the sake of the gospel. It is through such self-giving love and sacrificial service that the message of the gospel is declared to the world and the beauty of the gospel is displayed to the world. And when that happens, the Lord is glorified and his kingdom advances. And when we live that way, we make it clear that our hope and joy are not tied to earthly prosperity, but instead to spiritual realities that will culminate in a glorious future. When our hope is firmly anchored in this glorious, unseen divinely promised future, then we are free to lose everything for Jesus' sake. This connection between future hope and present faithfulness is made clear in a passage from Hebrews 10, verses 34 to 36, which says, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How can you joyfully accept the plundering of your property? It says they did that because since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. If my treasure and sense of well-being is tied to my earthly property, then I will not be able to joyfully accept the plundering of it. But if my treasure and my sense of well-being is tied to my great reward in heaven, which is beyond the reach of men, then even though they can plunder my house and my livelihood and my bank account, they cannot plunder my better and abiding possession that is safe and secure in the heavens. Dear Christian, you and your inheritance are secure forever by the power of God. 1 Peter 1, verses 3-5. to The things of this present life are not secure. Okay, as I consider the current American landscape, I see two things, at least two things. First, I see general social dysfunction, moral chaos, political division, economic instability, family stress and disorder and individual depression and weariness. Second, I see American society moving quickly in a direction that will result in the increased persecution of Christians which will mean that Christians are maligned and pushed to the margins of society. If we're going to live well as Christians in the midst of this general social dysfunction and in the face of threats and persecutions, then we must have our our hope firmly fixed in the glorious future that God has promised. This means that our hope is not in men. Our hope is not in the midterm elections on November the 8th. Our hope is not in the strategies, movements, initiatives, and parties that are overseen by men. I'm not saying that these things are irrelevant or unworthy of our attention. What I am saying is that our confidence regarding the future is not in the schemes of men. From Psalm 146, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. And then that same psalm goes on to say, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. The Lord loves the righteous, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. So my exhortation to all of us today is to stand together in the one hope, what Peter calls the living hope, that the Lord our God has set before us. And the phrase, stand together, is key. After celebrating the unity of the body of Christ in Ephesians chapters 2 and 3, Paul then gives this exhortation at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4. And hopefully your Bible is open there. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is based on the foundational reality that the church is one. As verse 4 begins, there is one body. This is a reference to the church. As Paul had said earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, that the church is the body of Christ. There's one body, one church. Of course, there are pseudo-churches, splinter groups, heretical religious communities, and cults that claim the Christian label, But as far as the true church goes, there is one church. The body of Christ is not divided. Further, the unity of the church is not merely a social occurrence. The unity of the church is a spiritual reality defined by God, by the gospel of God, and by the promise of God. It is no accident that the word one in Ephesians 4, 4 4-6 occurs seven times. The number seven is often used symbolically in Scripture to denote completeness. Thus, we are to understand that there is completeness and perfection to the unity of the Spirit that is found in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the seven occurrences of one. One body. There is one true church. One Spirit. Verse 4. This means that there are not many spirits energizing the church in which case we would all be fluttering about in different directions but there is one spirit directing the church since there is one spirit directing the church then if we are keeping in step with the holy spirit then we should expect the church to be characterized by unified forward movement there's one hope verse four this means that there is one glorious future which we are anticipating and looking forward to, which means that when it comes to our most basic and big-picture big goals, we share the same goals that have been set before us by the Lord's promises. One Lord, verse 5, there are not many lords competing for mastery in the church. If, if there were, then your obedience would clash with my obedience and your worship would clash with my worship because our eyes would be focused on different lords different standards different expectations in fact however there is one lord jesus christ and as our eyes are fixed on him we grow together in him one faith verse five this means that there is one set of core doctrines that we believe sometimes in the bible Faith is used as a verb to describe the act of trusting God. And at other times, faith is used as a noun to describe what it is that we believe. Here, the word faith is being used to indicate what we believe. Sometimes people make the mistake, they they, they draw a mistaken conclusion that doctrine divides. But just the opposite is the case. Doctrine unites all those who submit to it. Doctrine is a ballast and support for the unity of the church. We don't play fast and loose with God's word. We don't attempt to get creative and make things up. Instead, we receive the same precious doctrine taught by God's holy word, and we put our confidence in it. One baptism, verse 5. This means that there is one prescribed way of publicly identifying with the Lord and publicly entering into the church community, namely by by being immersed into water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And finally, there is one God and Father of all. Verse 6, there are not many gods and fathers vying for allegiance in the church. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself as a sacrifice for sin in order to reconcile us to God the Father. Because we enjoy the same comfort, the same care, the same counsel that comes to all believers from one God and Father, we should expect to be able to function peaceably as brothers and sisters in the household of God with one and the same Father watching over us all. Since these things are so, since there is one Father who... For our salvation sent his one and dear Son, who for our sanctification sent his one and life-giving Spirit who draws sinners into the one faith and leads them through the one and same baptism into the one body and thereafter calls them to follow Christ in everyday obedience with one glorious hope set before them. Since these things are so, we should be eager to avoid all selfish ambition, all stupid arguments, all careless infighting, all nitpicky critiques, and all attempts to distract each other from the weighty foundation of the Christian life. As Ephesians 4, 2-3 direct us, we should humbly, gently, patiently, forbearingly, lovingly, and eagerly strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, with all that said, we are finally ready to highlight the actual content of our hope. I want to draw attention to seven closely related aspects of our hope. I would advise you, most of you anyway, unless you're wired a peculiar way, uh, not to attempt to turn your Bible to every scripture reference because I'm, I'm flying, man. But this will be on the website, uh, Lord willing, tomorrow, and then you can... It's not that I don't want you to test it. I do want you to test it. It's just impractical for you to follow along right now. Seven things. First, our Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. By by the way, these seven things, they make the cut because they're just testified to over and over and over again from so many different scriptural passages, which I hope is evident to you as we go along here. But our Lord is coming again. When the risen Lord Jesus ascended into heaven... The apostles were gazing into heaven as he went, Acts 1.10, and suddenly two angels appeared and told them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven, Acts 1.11. In Philippians chapter 3, the apostle Paul says that unlike worldly-minded people who are addicted to earthly pleasures... For us Christians, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20. In another letter, Paul gave a solemn charge to Timothy to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 6.14. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, it is my custom, after we have partaken of the bread and the cup, to read 1 Corinthians 11:26, 26, which says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Peter responded to fleshly-minded scoffers who asked the question with an attitude of cynicism, where is the promise of his coming? In 2 Peter 3. And Peter re- replied by proclaiming to his Christian audience that the Lord is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then Peter immediately added, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 2 Peter 3.10 The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Matthew 25, verses 14 and 19. The blessed hope of our Lord's promised return is an absolutely foundational belief and it frames the entire Christian life. Second, when our Lord comes, He will judge and condemn the unrighteous. He will settle accounts, to use the language from Matthew 25. The Lord comes in order to judge, to separate the wheat from the chaff, the diligent from the careless, the faithful from the unfaithful, the loving sheep from the unloving goats. He will cut the wicked in pieces, Matthew 24, 51, and cast them into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 25, 30. The future day of judgment with Jesus seated as judge is part of the gospel message that we proclaim. When Paul was proclaiming the gospel to the intellectuals in Athens, he said, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, from the dead, Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. Psalm 110, which celebrates the royal authority of the Messiah, as well as the Messiah's eternal priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, which we learned about a few weeks ago. This psalm also celebrates the Messiah as the executor of justice. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Psalm 110, verses 4 to 6. The Father has given authority to execute judgment to Jesus. John 5, 27. The New Testament gives a clear and sober warning that the wrath of God is coming. Colossians 3:6 Upon unrepentant sinners. Divine wrath and righteous retribution will be executed upon the unrighteous by the crucified Lamb. Revelation 6, verses 14 to 17. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? The great day of judgment will not only be the undoing of irreligious people. It will also be the undoing of many religious people who used Jesus but never came to actually love him? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7: On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew 7:22 to 23. Our Lord came the first time as a lowly servant who laid down his life for us. The second time, he is coming as a conquering king. Therefore, stay awake at all times, Jesus said, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man, Luke 21, verse 36. Number three, when our Lord comes, he will save, vindicate, praise and reward His faithful ones. The same Lord who renders judgment against the ungodly will render judgment in favor of those who trust Him. Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Our Lord will save us from the wrath of God. Paul described true servants of God as those who wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Jesus shields us from the wrath that will be poured out upon the ungodly. Romans 5.9 says, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, that's in the past, much more shall we be saved, looking to the future, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Our Lord's second coming also means our vindication. In this present world, it often looks like believers are on the losing side, the weak side, the suffering side. But God will settle the score when Jesus returns. In reference to those who persecute and afflict us, Paul writes in The one who vindicates us will also praise us. Well done, good and faithful servant, Matthew 25, verses 21 to 23. Paul anticipated wonderful grace from the Lord on the day of judgment. When he wrote the first part of this, you would think, how can he be so optimistic? But he knows the Lord. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And this commendation and praise will be accompanied by reward. As Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Fourth, when our Lord comes, our lowly bodies will be raised up and glorified. At this present time, our physical bodies bear the marks of living in a fallen world. Our bodies are beset by weakness, by fatigue, by illness, by mortality, by the aging process, and finally by death. In terms of our present life, we are running down and wearing out. Our outer self is wasting away, 2 Corinthians 4.16. The Christian hope is not to be set free from the body, but for the body, for the body itself to be resurrected sanctified and glorified for the body itself will be translated into the immortal sphere. God's will is that when we enter into our everlasting inheritance in God's kingdom that we enter into it as embodied creatures. The problem is that these perishable bodies are incapable of inheriting the imperishable glories of the age to come we need a hardware upgrade, and God intends to give it to you. The promise of the gospel is that this perishable body will one day put on the imperishable, and this mortal body will one day put on immortality, 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 53, for us believers, death will be undone. Death will be swallowed up in victory. And in new bodies, we will enter into the realm of unending joy. Paul writes, this is not, this is not a peripheral teaching. Paul writes, we ourselves who have the firstfruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Romans 8, verses 23 and 24. When our Lord comes, He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Philippians 3, 21. Fifth. When our Lord comes, we will behold His glory, be glorified with Him, and enjoy His presence forever. One day, we will see the Lord face to face, and the sight of Him will satisfy our hearts forever. Paul writes that when He comes on that day, His purpose in coming is to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, 2 Thessalonians 1.10. John writes... We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is, 1 John 3, 2. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory, Colossians 3, 4. Indeed, we suffer with Him now at the present time in order that we may also be glorified with Him when He comes again, Romans 8, 17. Some of the most precious words in the entire New Testament are found in First Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 16 and 17 which says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Then Paul immediately adds, therefore, encourage one another with these words. The heart of our hope is that one day we will be with the Lord forever. The Lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd and He will guide us to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Revelation 7, 17. In the most ultimate sense, our hope is not in what will happen, when, or how. But, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.1, Christ Jesus himself is our hope. Sixth, when our Lord comes, the promise of a new creation will be fulfilled. The Lord's coming has a cosmic scope, namely to recreate the universe. Paul tells us, I'm sorry, Peter Peter tells us that when the day of the Lord comes, then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, 2 Peter 3.10. Well, if the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, 2 Peter 3.7, then what will exist after the day of judgment? Peter writes some of the most important words in all the Bible in 2 Peter 3, verses 11 to 14. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved... Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You know, we can have friendly discussion about how this sequence of future events might be mapped out on a timeline. But let's not forget that Peter wrote these words in order to put life in proper perspective and to compel us to holiness and godliness and diligence and readiness for our Lord's return. Seventh, we will reign with Christ forever. The first woman was created to reign alongside the first, to to reign as queen alongside the first Adam. Their joint reign quickly fell into disarray because of their sin, but when this present world gives way to eternity, the glorious bride of Christ will reign alongside King Jesus forever. It's a stunning promise. The saints are destined to judge the world and to judge angels. 1 Corinthians 6, 1-3. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2-12. Revelation 22, verses 3-5 to five, says that God's servants will worship him, will see his face, and will reign forever and ever. The new creation will flourish forever under the gracious rule of God's redeemed people. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we stand together, and we must stand together in this one and living hope. And here's my conviction. There is so much gravity and weightiness to this Sevenfold hope that I've just walked through, that in my, in my estimation, if we actually stand together in the one hope that belongs to our call, then it is foolish to divide over what one believes about the nature and timing of the millennium, or the nature and timing of the rapture, or the nature and timing of the final tribulation and antichrist. I'm not suggesting that such questions are unimportant or that we can't talk about them and I'm not here to critique your particular view, but what I am saying and do believe with all my heart is that it is foolish to divide from one another because we give different answers to the finer points of end time questions. If we stand together on the rock-solid foundation of God's lavish promises concerning the future, then let us be resolved To truly stand together, to receive one another, to work side by side, to suffer together, to support each other through trials, to so love one another that we display display the character of God to our ungodly world, to shoulder one another's burdens, and to contend for the faith as brothers and sisters, as friends and allies who wrestle against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6.12. On the basis of the future hope promised to us, we can make great sacrifices for the cause of Christ. We can reason, like the hymn says, let goods and kindred go this mortal life also, the, bo- the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever. We can face every affliction and say, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, 2 Corinthians four seventeen. We can lose everything For Jesus' sake, and still abide in peace and joy and love because of the hope laid up for us in heaven. As one hymn puts it, sing the wondrous love of Jesus, sing his mercy and his grace. In the mansions, bright and blessed, he'll prepare for us a place. While we walk the pilgrim pathway, clouds will overspread the sky, but When traveling days are over, not a shadow, not a sigh, let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day. Just one glimpse of Him in glory will the toils of life repay. Onward to the prize before us. Soon His beauty will behold. Soon the pearly gates will open. We shall tread the streets of gold. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would anchor us together in the one hope that belongs to our call and that this glorious hope would free us from being overly attached to this present world and that we would learn to lay down everything for Jesus' sake, for the gospel's sake, for each other, that your name might be known and glorified upon this earth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.